Welcome to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, exploring leadership in nursing through inspiring conversations. Today's episode is sponsored by AACN's eLearning, offering online courses for nurse preceptors like the Preceptor Challenge, with information available at aacn.org forward slash precept. Now here's your host, AACN's Chief Clinical Officer, Connie Barton. Connie Barton here, and um, I think you're really going to like this episode. I get to talk today with Sarah Lorenzini. And Sarah is a rapid response supervisor at a great big hospital in Florida, a big teaching hospital in Florida. Not only that, though, Sarah is also a podcaster. She has a podcast series on the topic of rapid response teams. So, Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Connie. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, it's one thing to be a podcast host. It's another one to be on the other side of the bed rail, so to speak. So, uh, <laughs> Well, honestly, you have the harder here. job. It's harder to come up with questions than to just talk off the top of my head about what I love. So thank you. Thanks oh, for having me. Don't you worry. I'm ready to pepper you with questions. Not <laughs> okay, <worry>. great. <laughs> well, you know, generally what we start with is folks getting to know you. So why don't you start just telling us a little bit about the overview of your nursing journey and how the heck you got to where you are today? Sure. So I've been a nurse for coming up on 20 years, which is crazy to say out loud. Um, I went to nursing school with every intent to be like a pediatric nurse or midwife or something with mamas and babies. Well, I've never done that. <laughs> um, I tried so hard to get a job in nursing school as a nurse tech on the labor delivery floor, and they just wouldn't give me an interview. So I was like, you know what? The ER has pediatrics. I'll go there just as a tech, just to learn and see the kids. And I just fell in love with taking care of patients and their families in crisis, like on the worst day of their life. I never, ever thought I'd be an ER nurse. I'm definitely not your typical like adrenaline junkie ER nurse, um, but I just love the ER so much. So right out of nursing school, I was an ER nurse. And then I got involved being the church nurse and preceptor and doing lots of education with the new hires. And then I was like, you know what, I'm going to go back and get my master's degree in nursing education because I love talking about and teaching nursing as much as I love being a nurse. Yeah. Um, so did grad school, took me a very long time because I have lots of kids. Um, and then in grad school, all my professors were like, Sarah, you need to go work somewhere besides ER just to see other environments at the hospital. It'll, it'll make you a better educator. So I like to take other people's advice and um, especially if it's good ones from experienced nurses. So I went and worked in the cardiac ICU. Man, did I love cardiac ICU. The, the investigator like nerd inside of me got to really uh, like deep dive, learn all of the stuff, all the pathophys. I love cardiac ICU, learned so much. And then I was asked to be on the rapid response team, which I was like, well, first of all, what is that? But right. from what I'm hearing, this is the perfect job. It's like a mix of ER and critical care all in one. So I did that for a bit. And I finally finished that master's degree. Um, I got hired as a nursing professor and I was a nursing professor for one year. And I loved the students so much. I loved creating content and, you know, making like PowerPoints and all that stuff. But then I missed the bedside. <laughs> so um, I was a whopping 30 years old at the time. And so then, um, the nurse who was my charge nurse when I was a new grad became the director of the ER. And he reached out to me, asked me to be the ER educator. So I came and I was the ER educator for five years. Loved that role. Again, I get to be at the bedside. I get to be with the nurses. I get to be training all the new grads. I get to be in the environment of the emergency room. 
And then COVID hit. And I, I just saw all of my team like in the trenches, you know, sweating in their PPE, taking care of these patients. And I saw the state of our hospital and how difficult that time was. And I had worked rapid response prior. So I knew how valuable that role was. And my hospital uh, that I'm currently at, at the time in 2020, did not have a dedicated rapid response team. And I just, my heart wanted to be with the patients again. And so I went to the leadership of my hospital and said, we need to start a dedicated rapid response team here. And I would like to lead it. (laughs) And long story short, they said, sure. (laughs) So here you go, start it. And so that was in August of 2020. So for the last almost three years, I've been uh, the rapid response team supervisor, which mostly means I'm doing rapid response nursing all day long with a little bit of payroll and scheduling. So (laughs) it, it really is a dream job. I'm so happy to be here. And then there's still more to the story. So I started the rapid response team, loved it so much. Um, I no longer was the ER educator. I always say that you can take educator off my badge, but it's still running through my veins. I still love to teach. And I was just sharing with my husband, like, oh, so now I'm the rapid response supervisor and I miss being the educator. He's like, honey, you can still educate. You can still do education. Why don't you start a podcast? And I just laugh like, ah, me? No way. I don't, where would I record? Like, I don't know how to use a microphone. There's no way I'd be the one to start a podcast. But um Long story short, uh, I started recording in a closet and the podcast just took off. And so we're now about two years into the podcast and it's doing so well. And it has been one of the biggest joys of my career because I get to reach and support more nurses that are outside of my hospital. Like, yes, I get to love on the nurses in my hospital, but there's nurses from all over the world that listen to the podcast and I get to hear their messages. And I think my favorite thing is when a nurse messages me and says, Sarah, I listened to episode 35. And then I had that same exact patient and I knew exactly what to do. That oh, makes my day. So yes, in summary, <laughs> I did ER, cardiac ICU, rap response nursing, nursing professor, ER educator, rap response team supervisor, and now currently rap response RN podcast host. So yeah, long answer to your short question. Oh my gosh. And all of that in 20 years and I'm exhausted just hearing about it. Very exciting and very unique. So I really want to poke around a little bit about that. So I don't want to have an assumption here that everybody listening has the same uh, concept of rapid response teams as as what you're talking. So everybody's heard the term by now, but I think there are a lot of varied models out there. So you can be your educator now and tell us about, so how would you describe rapid response teams and nursing from your perspective now? Sure. So in 2004, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, they launched the 100,000 Lives campaign. And as a part of that was the need for rapid response teams. Now, they didn't spell out who needs to be on it or what the structure is. They just said there needs to be some sort of mechanism in every hospital where staff can reach out and get help from um, experienced like nurses or a team that knows how to handle emergencies. And so that's when kind of like the buzz of rapid response team started. So every hospital now per joint commission has to have some sort of process. Does it say who has to resolve some sort of process? Some hospitals have like this person comes from this area and this person comes from this area and then they all can convene. Um, It's different everywhere. And so at my hospital, prior to having a dedicated rapid response team, we met all the standards we had, depending on where the rapid response was happening, wherever the emergency was happening, Um, either like the ICU charge nurse or the cardiac ICU charge nurse or the ER charge nurse, depending on the location, would show up and meet up with the respiratory therapist and the ICU doctor and the phlebotomist. Like All those people would kind of convene together um, to take care of that patient who was crashing. And that worked fine. 
for a while, but then at the height of COVID, you know, as you know, the hospital census was exploding at the seams and, you know, the nurses are stretched even thinner. And then a lot of the experienced nurses are now taking travel assignments. So the nurses that are still working at our hospital are much um, more novice. And so the need to have someone dedicated to just do rapid response became very, very apparent um, because it was not in the hospital's best interest for the ICU charge nurse to leave the ICU full of vented, critically ill patients to go somewhere else to help another emergency. And so honestly, COVID was the catalyst for me to be able to say, we need a dedicated team in our hospital. Not every hospital has a dedicated team. I don't think every hospital even needs a dedicated team because they're not all you know big enough to like justify that, but our hospital is pretty big. And, um, it was, it was a pretty easy sell. And so the, de- the role of the dedicated rap response team is to be there to respond to every emergency that happens. And my favorite part is to get to help prevent emergencies from happening as well. So yeah. not only do we show up when a crisis is happening, but we do like, pro- I mean, we'll talk about it eventually, but we do lots of things to prevent the emergency ever happening. So in summary, rap response teams is a team of people who has special training that feels comfortable and ready to respond to any emergency that happens inside the hospital. Whenever uh, lay people ask me, what do you do for a living? And when I say I'm a rapid response nurse, you can just see the, the stare, like what, uh, what is that? So I explain it to a lay person. We're kind of like the 911 within the yeah. hospital. So when, yeah. an emer- when someone's having a heart attack in 535A, of the hospital, you don't call 911, you call the rapid response team and we show up and get interventions rapidly. We're all specially trained. We have special protocols and we are, we're ready to respond to whatever could arise, both for patients, but also for visitors. Um, we're there for all of that. So yeah. for me, it is a dream job. I, I love that. The 911 team inside the hospital. One thing I want to ask you about, you, you mentioned that prior to COVID, there was not a dedicated team. And frankly, I think that's the prevailing model in many places. And you said that worked fine, but I'll push back a little bit and say, I'm not so sure it works fine. Before we move on, I want to talk a little bit about, there's some downsides to not having a dedicated team. What I remember is, you know, here you are doing your daily work in the ICU, taking care of your patients, and then suddenly there's a rapid response. You just have to drop everything and go. Same for respiratory, same for the ICU doc and whoever else. And if the patient gets intubated and ventilated, it has to wait for a bed, who's going to take care of the patient out on the right. floor. So right. what are some of the pros and cons of dedicated versus non-dedicated teams? I mean, that's obviously <laughs> one of them is just having the person. So I'll tell you, I don't see any cons to having a dedicated team, except for, I guess, financially, it costs more for the hospital to pay a team. Yeah. I mean, and that's real. They got to have more FTEs to cover. Yeah. But other than that, there are so many benefits to having a dedicated team. So if you think about it from a culture perspective too, and this is something I'm really passionate about when you have to pull a nurse away from the ICU to go to to the rapid response emergency, one, they're like trying to like wrap this thing up and get back to their unit, right? They have a patient's waiting for them. They have a team that needs them. You just interrupted what they were working on. They want to like get in and get out and get it done. Yeah. And so a lot of the, um, the opportunities for education and for nursing empowerment at the bedside, those aren't able to be taken advantage of as much because the ICU nurse, I get it. They got to get back to their unit. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is that kind of comes across when they show up, like, why'd you call us? What's going on? Okay. 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 All right, do this, do this. We got to go. Right. And and I understand that. Um, But 
as a dedicated team, I don't have patients that I have to get back to. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm here for. And so when we can show up and like empower the nurses to call us earlier, rather than waiting until they really can justify, you know, like, I hate to call you guys. I hate to take you away from your patients, but that they're like really justified. Well, then they're waiting so late to call our response. And so often it was like rap response, two minutes later, code blue, That's right. <laughs> but now nurses know, okay, Sarah's there. So if I have a question, if I'm concerned about something, I can call the rap response nurse before the patient's blue and get interventions going. And let me tell you, the data from our hospital is super impressive about how many code blues we had before a dedicated team and how many code blues we've had after the dedicated team. It's, it's really, really awesome. That's amazing. You know, uh, before I forget, there used to be a thing too where we encourage families to call rapid response. What do you yep, have to do with we families have that too. if they're concerned? Yeah, we call it condition H. And ah. so the family has a number they can call um, to get help if they need it. Yeah. Does that come to you all to rapid response or it's uh, sort of triaged in another way? It's it's triaged by the operator. So the mm-hmm. operator answers and says, do you have a medical emergency? If they say yes, they call the rapid response team. If they say no, I'm unhappy about the meal that was delivered. <laughs> Right. Then they will, uh, you know, get it to the right person that needs to handle that situation. Which yeah, is not me. I'm glad you don't have to go get the dinner tray and make sure. No, no, stat, stat, yeah. jello. Yeah. No. <laughs> so I, I want to back up a little bit because I think you glossed sure. over something really important. So here it is, 2020. You go to the uh, leadership of your hospital and you say, "We really need a dedicated rap response team," and they're like, "Sure, go for it." Nothing happens that easily <laughs> in hospitals, so you're selling yourself short. What kind of preparation did you have for having that conversation? What kind of data did you need to take? Like, how did you, that is a huge deal. Yes. Because like we said, it costs money. And there's a lot of FTEs to cover a service 24-7. So how the heck did you do it really? What what would be some advice you'd give about doing this? So data definitely speaks volumes. So I pulled the data and said, this is how many rapid responses we have every month on average. This is how long the ICU charge nurse is away from her unit for these rapid responses. This is how many patients um, are upgraded to progressive care and ICU every single month. Um, And it kind of like showed the cost analysis of it. This is expensive for us to do this. Um, Additionally, they were also very aware of the need for support for their nurses because they saw so many that were leaving, leaving the profession, but also just leaving to go somewhere else. And I already had a reputation in the hospital as being a very like nurturing and supporting nurse. And I said, listen, if you hire me as a rapid response, I'm not just going to be waiting around, twiddling my thumbs, waiting for emergencies. I'm going to be out there educating the nurses, giving them what they need to feel empowered to speak and advocate and to help them in this COVID pandemic, in this crisis, letting them know this is going to be more than just uh, a wasted FTE waiting for emergencies. We're going to be hopefully preventing them on, on multiple levels. Um, so yeah, showing the data of how much it's needed and then kind of letting them know what the value is for them. It's not just someone else is going to be doing the job of someone was doing it before. (laughs) It's like, no, we're going to, we're going to fix things and we're going to make things better for the whole hospital. You know, um, healthy work environments is a big deal. And when nurses don't feel supported, when they feel like they have no one to call, they don't have resources that, that really plays into retention. And so when I say like the nurses will know that even though COVID is scary, there's going to be a critical care nurse, a wrap response nurse, who's there for them as a resource to answer questions, to support them, to help them advocate. So that was a, that was a huge sell. Yeah. But um, when we started, we 
did a lot of things to shift the culture because like a lot of hospitals, culture was rough at the height of COVID, right? Everyone's stressed, everyone's tired, everyone's hot, um, everyone's spread thin. And so we came in and said, we have to shift the culture that surrounds rapid response to, because nurses had gotten to where they were like afraid to call. They don't want to bug the ICU. They were afraid someone would say, oh, this is an emergency. We've got sicker people up in the ICU. They just, they didn't want to bother anybody because everyone already knows we're all stretched thin, right? Mm-hmm. And so I was, I wanted to make it very clear that we were available to the nurses. So we made ourselves physically present. We rounded, um, we did education on Muse. We made this thing called nurse consults, we call it our hospital. So just like a doctor can consult a cardiologist, a specialist, the nurses have the ability to text us and say, hey, the vital signs are actually okay, but I'm worried about the way my patient's breathing or their eyes look funny or their belly's just bigger than it was yesterday or whatever their concern is, they can consult us and we'll come help them kind of Sherlock Holmes it together. Let's figure out what's going on Mm -hmm. and help them advocate. So um, through nurse consults and like making ourselves available through lots of education. So again, this is my heart. I love educating, have a master's degree in it. So we did crash cart rounding. I made a crash cart scavenger hunt where we would push this crash cart around and nurses could find things and get candy. And um, we did mock drills and we'd come to shift huddles and educate. We made badge buddies. Uh, I was very um, intentional about doing debriefing after rapid responses and after code blue. So after we stabilize the patient, get them onto the ICU, I would come back to the floor and debrief about what went well, what can we learn from that, give kudos to the staff and really just shift the culture from this was terrible. We had to call a rapid to great job guys. We recognize your decline and we called a rapid or we called a code blue and we did what's right for the patient. And the last thing that we did was I really wanted to shift um, like the herodom off of the rap response nurse. Cause before it was like, all right, step aside, critical care nurses here. We know what we're doing. We got this. Yeah. I'm like, no, I can't do this by myself. I'm reliant on all these nurses to help me save this patient's life. And so empowering them to feel good about making the call about speaking up and advocating. And so we started something called the lifesaver award. And mm. so when nurses are, you know, when they found someone who is getting worse and they spoke up and said something and it played an important part of saving the patient's life, we recognize them. They get a little um, pin on their badge. It's like a little lifesaver and they get a bag of lifesavers, a little plaque. And we present those and post it on the hospital's Facebook and make a big deal out of like, you are a part of saving a patient's life. It wasn't just the rap response team that came in and saved the day. You were an important part of this. And so with all those things, with empowering the nurses with education and making ourselves available and doing the lifesaver reward and doing debriefing, just by like building everyone up, well, the amount of rapid responses tripled, <laughs> yeah. which is great. That's success. Because the amount of code blues was cut in half. So I'm mm-hmm. happy to go to way more rapid responses and know that it's, we're preventing patients from coding, right? So it's totally worth it to me. But yeah, once they knew we existed, our it's you actually have like bar graphs of it. It's crazy to see the trend of like more and more and more and more rapid responses. But then this on the same bar line, the code blue is going the opposite direction. So yes, they keep us busy, but I would rather be busy than bored. So I'm 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 here for it. I love it. So there was a, there's a whole lot of stuff you did getting started. So now it's going. It's been three years in the going. You're kind of cooking along here. And what about some days where it's not particularly busy? So how many on the team? First of all, let's do an anatomy thing. There's how many nurses, how many respiratory, how many people make up the team in a shift? Not enough, but we make it work. (laughs) So per shift, we at our hospital, we have one rapid response nurse for day shift and one rapid response nurse for night shift. As the supervisor of the team, I'm there Monday through Friday-ish for about 40 hours. 
and I also help with rapid responses. Our, our busiest time is during the day. Um, so that's so far all I've been successful in getting FTEs for. But so you we, don't have other a respiratory and others dedicated. Oh, no, so we do. Oh, yeah. So dedicated rapid response nurse, the mm-hmm. respiratory supervisor will come, like the shift supervisor will come to rapid responses. Um, the ICU has residents and nurse practitioners and PAs that respond, but they are, they come from their unit thing is that there's, um, having the nurse have to leave their team of patients is more, I would say dangerous sure. than having the respiratory therapist who already has, I don't even know, 50 patients or something coming to this rap response. So, um, there's a dedicated rap response nurse. There's not dedicated anything else at the moment. Gotcha. And so if, if that nurse or that nurse and you are hanging out on a day. Nobody's pushing the buzzer and calling after response. What do you do with your time? Like oh, is your, man. you do screening of high risk we patients do. Do you do. So, in place like that. Our hospital uses Muse modified early warning score. And we have the ability to pull the Muse for every single patient, in the whole hospital, like floor by floor. So I'll click on the second floor. I'll look at all their patients Muse. Uh, if nothing seems concerning, I did third floor. So we do that at 8 a.m., at noon and 4 p.m., and then at 8 p.m., at midnight and 4 a.m. When available. Sometimes we're running around doing rapid responses, but when available, we pull the muse. And let me tell you, we have caught so many patients who are like on the verge from doing that muse. Yeah. You know, it, and the muse score will highlight minor changes. Like the blood pressure is, you know, 90 over 50 and the heart rate is 110. So not crazy. No one's freaking out about that but we can tell early on, okay, they're getting septic. Um, or so we can get in there and get fluids going, or we can give whatever, adjust their medications, help the nurse advocate. So, um, yes, there's always views patients to go look at always. And then we also help out in the ER and the ICUs whenever, you know, acuity is high or they have some situation happening or, you know, the ER will call us and say, we've got two copters inbound and we have a cardiac arrest that's here already. And what, I mean, whatever's going on, can you come just be extra set of hands? And we love doing that. We just want to be there to support the whole house when things are really difficult and really challenging. So I never find myself bored. There's always something to do. We can round, sure. we can do education, we can do news poll, we can go help in the ER, go help in the IC. Like, there's always something to do, right? Yeah, yeah. And technology helps you do that by being able to review the news scores. And yeah. yeah, that's really super. So when you're getting ready to hire somebody to be in this nursing role, what are some of the qualities that you, you're the supervisor there. So what would you look for in a nurse that would make them an ideal person to uh, work on the rapid response team? So at minimum at our hospital, we require three years of critical care or ER experience. We also require them to be certified in their specialty. So either CCRN or CEN. I don't think every hospital requires that, but that's, that's what I require. I think it speaks volumes about your dedication to professional development. Um, but on it, that's minimum. That's like minimum clinical competence is three years experience and the certification that says, at least you know what you're doing. But for me, it's personality as much as it is clinical competence. So I look for nurses that are already seen as leaders or resources on their floor. Mm -hmm. So charge nurses, preceptors, you know, they're the super user for this and the super user for that. Like someone who people know they can go to if they have a question. I don't care if you're the smartest nurse with 37 letters behind your name from all your credentials. If you're rude or condescending or can't teach or can't lead a team in like a smooth way or... That's not who I'm looking for. That doesn't actually serve the hospital because so much of what we do is nursing empowerment, is teaching nurses. Mm -hmm. So if you come into the emergency thinking like, step aside, I'm here, I know what I'm doing. That actually doesn't help the patient. You know, that makes you 
uh, pump you up a little bit, make you feel good about yourself, but like, no, it doesn't actually serve the patient. And so I love people who like to teach. So everyone on my team has been a preceptor. A lot of them have been charge nurses. Um, that all of them just, you can just tell they exude, um, like support. They're not just there to like, you know, sling up an effort and do CPR. They also want to teach nurses and, and empower them. So, um, that's what I look for. And even in my interviewing, I ask questions to kind of parse that out. Like I ask them, like, what's a good day for you? What's something you're really proud of in your career? And if they say like, we had the craziest go, it was so freaking awesome. Uh, that, okay. Doesn't impress me. But if yeah. they say there was a nurse that I precepted and I got to see them, you know, do an amazing job caring for a patient, or we implemented this process that I was a part of, and it really helped the patients, mm. or I got some story of compassion that display something that's what I want to hear, you know, yeah. um, your ability to run ACLS, it, it doesn't impress me as much as your ability to kind of read the room and come alongside nurses and support them. So Sarah, now we've got the kind of people who will do well working in a rapid response team. So so one of the most important things that you share with team members, that you teach them that's different about doing this kind of nursing versus what they've done before. Anything you can share about that? Yeah, there's two big things that I think you don't think about as say an ER nurse or an ICU nurse. And one of them is when you're doing emergencies in say the ER, the ICU, you're used to the whole team being comfortable with emergencies. Everyone's trained in that. But when you show up to rapid response, not everyone is ACLS trained. Not everyone feels comfortable with that. And so I don't want to just jump in and start doing the skill that I know I'm really good at. Okay, I'll I'll jump in. I'll get the IO or I'll get the IV. I'm really good at IVs or I'll do CPR. I'm really good at CPR. Everyone's scared of it. If I'm just doing the one thing, I'm not actually serving the whole team. So I have to kind of take a bird's eye view, look at the whole room and see what is needed. How can I delegate and kind of oversee this whole thing going smoothly? So mm-hmm. shifting the mindset of I'm really good at this. I'm going to do it right now to Oh, actually someone else can start the IV and someone else can give the medications and who else can I have that can set up suction and not just trying to do everything yourself or just assuming that everyone else knows how to do everything. But like when I delegate, is it being done correctly? So that's one thing is kind of the bird's eye view of leadership in an emergency code blue leadership, not just one skill. Right. And then secondly, and this is something I've had to learn myself, you know, I tend to want to just come in and rescue. Oh, that doctor's not calling you back. That doctor's not giving you what you need. Okay. I'm gonna call him. <laughs> um, but that actually doesn't serve the nurse. Cause I just, I just came in and did it for them. So what I've shifted to, and what I teach my nurses is when you feel like something needs to be done differently, empower the nurse with the tools and even the scripting, the verbiage of what to say when you're trying to advocate rather than just advocating for them. I got broad shoulders. I can do this. I'll tell the doctor what the patient needs. Rather, I give them the exact words that I might say, and I sit next to them and I help them make the phone call. Or I say, the doctor's on his way. What are you going to say whenever he shows up? Here's something we can say. So even teaching the things like using the anatomical terms or like the medical terms when describing things, they don't say, hey, doctor, the patient's breathing funny, saying, doctor, I'm concerned because right now the patient's using all of their accessory muscles and they're sitting up in the bed. They have nasal flaring and their oxygen saturation. Yes, it is 91%, but they're on a hundred percent non-rebreather. So teaching the nurses, giving them scripting, what to say, how to call the doctor. And I'll even say, and if he says this, what would you want to say in response? And if they don't want to do this, how would you respond? So kind of like walking them through how to be an advocate. So next time, if I'm not there, let's say, 
they know how to use their voice and they know how to advocate for the patient on their own and not just doing it myself. There's even times when I've written out bullet point lists, like you're going to call the doc. You're going to make sure you say this. I want you to actually say the word concern, say, I am concerned about this or say, I am uncomfortable about this, or this feels unsafe. I want you to say that word in your, in your phone call. And then they get off the phone and you can just see them light up. Like I did it. I I advocated for my patient and they're ready to do it next time without me. So brilliant. I think that's a valuable skill that as a leader, you would want to do not just showing up and doing fixing it. The whole, like, you know, teach a person to fish versus just give them a fish. I don't want to just give out fish. I want to teach them how to advocate independently without me. Fabulous example. Thanks. That makes total sense. You're a a poster child for how this would happen. Let me ask you this. Do you have any idea, which you may not, about, look at hospitals across the country, which is five or 6,000, about how many have a dedicated RRT like you do? Do you have any idea about that? I do not have any solid hard data, but I have tried to research this so much because I'm really curious. From what I can gather, it's not a large percentage. Most hospitals don't have a dedicated D. Every hospital has some sort of process, which is good. But most hospitals have not forked out the money for a dedicated team because it's expensive to pay someone to be there all the time to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Within our hospital system, um, I would say it's probably less than a fourth have Mm -hmm. a dedicated team. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like our data just speaks volumes about the value of having a dedicated team, not just for the patients and better outcomes for the patients but also for things like a healthy work environment and nursing retention and nursing satisfaction. And um, even for like the family members, I get so many letters from family members saying my loved one had the worst day of their, their life and an angel stepped in mm-hmm. and, and helped out. And they're talking about one of my team. Sure. So it really is very comforting for the family to see this team come in that, you know, really feels comfortable managing the emergency um, and also kind of managing the team as well. Not just like doing what the patient needs, but the whole time also looking in the room, like what do the nurses need in this room? Who is in the corner freaking out, hyperventilating and who is like, you know, needing direction for what to do next. To me, the role is a lot more than just being clinically competent. You really have to be a good leader and really care about your profession as a whole and want to give back. You know, there's a lot of swirl and you mentioned it earlier about people sometimes calling RRT and in comes the team and like, what are you bothering us for? And or how did you miss this? And this guy's now in pulmonary edema, you know, whatever like that. What are some of the misconceptions and the, the downsides of sort of the ordinary way of doing RRT? Not in your place, which sounds amazing, but like, what do you see and what's so uh, difficult for a lot of people and how might people work to change the, the aura or how might leaders help their nurses to better utilize RRT sort of routine? Such an important question. Thanks for asking that, Connie. I think what a lot of nurses don't realize is when they show up and are condescending, they think that they're just like correcting the nurse. They don't do it again in the future. But what they're really doing is they're training the nurse not to call them next time. They're telling the nurse, this was stupid. Why did you bother us? Or I can't believe you did this. How could you have done this? And so in the future, that nurse is going to delay calling for help and wait until it's really, really bad. And I would rather a nurse call me and it actually not be an emergency is something I can just educate to like, oh yeah, yes, their breathing is funny, but it's because of this, or, you know, yes, their eyes look different, but it's because of this, or um, yes, the blood pressure says 60 over 40, but the patient's awake and talking to us and pink, warm and dry. And so we can maybe read, you know, change the cuff a little bit. So I'm happy to do education because then next time they're happy to call me again. They're not afraid to call. 
And so by showing up at that, like, I'm here to save the day and I know everything and you don't mentality that actually harms patients. And so if I can shift that culture, that mindset and nurses to think the way that I show up, the way I control my eyebrows, whenever I respond to this emergency is actually helping future patients. That's really important. And as far as a leader goes, you know, if you're the leader on say the med search floor, I think it's important to relate to your staff. I would rather you call early and call often and it not be an emergency then you wait and it be harming the patient. Yeah. Like I, to me, I would much rather be like, oh, it's okay that you called than for you to have waited. So relaying that to their own team, like it's okay to call. I want you to call. And then also that leader, if they see their nurse getting some sort of pushback, say from the doctor or from who knows, why did you call this? This is an emergency. Um, if they see that pushback, they need to stand up and advocate for their nurse mm-hmm. and not allow that type of bullying, condescending, toxic behavior. Um, and, and more importantly, not be a part of it, right? The leader mm-hmm. needs to be the one that's shifting the culture of rapid responses are a good thing. The nurse that had to call three rapid responses on their shift is probably not a bad nurse. It's probably a nurse that recognized three different times her patient was declining and spoke up and said something about it. And so I think leaders play a huge role in shifting that culture. And as we shift that culture, we help more patients, right? Yeah. Everyone's so focused on the H's and T's and the, the ACLS algorithm and all the clinical stuff. But right. some of these softer skills, these leadership skills, these empowerment techniques, that really is life-saving. And, and we have seen that supported by the data at our hospital. So it's not just that our mere existence has changed patients' lives and reduced the amount of code blues, but I think that the culture that we have brought that empowers nurses has really what's made the difference. That is such a great lesson. And I would say whether a place has a dedicated team or not, but shifting the culture around RRT, it actually can be used to improve the work environment, to empower nurses, to uh, improve data and patient outcomes. We want to see RRTs going up. We want to, and at, at the same time, code blues going down. It's a quality improvement thing. And I know that when you start to change culture in one place, it doesn't just stay there. It'll change. It can shift the culture of the unit and the work environment of the unit all the way around. It seems like to me. Absolutely. And we've seen that at our facility. You know, Sarah Lorenzini, it has been a joy to talk to you. And there's a a kind of a question that I always wrap up with, but I got to tell you, I'm a little afraid to ask you this because you are like joy and optimism personified, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So you are a 20-year nurse. You've done a whole bunch of stuff. You know the ins and outs of healthcare. What makes you optimistic about the future in healthcare and in nursing? Oh, there's so much. I think one of the things that I'm really excited about is I am seeing the old, like, eat your young mentality kind of get squashed. And that, that brings me a lot of joy. I remember being in nursing school and my professor is telling me, just so you know, nurses eat their young. It's just kind of part of it. He's got to kind of pay your dues and eventually they'll trust you. It's just part of it. So I was ready for it. But I feel like even though, yes, there's still nurse bullies and there's still things we have to deal with, that that mentality of nurses either young, that's looked down upon now. People are like, what are you doing? Why are you being a bully? That's not okay. And there's so much research around it. There's so much support for as a profession, let's come together and help out the next generation of nurses. And and I have, I have seen that shift in my 20 years. It still has work to be done. I'm not saying we're done, but I think that's really exciting to see as a profession that we're, we're moving towards supporting each other and lifting each other up rather than 
um, making each other pay our dues or whatever the old mentality was. I hate that dogma and I'm glad it's being smashed. Wow, absolutely. And I would just say that you as a leader and the kind of work that you're doing are, are one of many people who are making that shift change. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with me today. It's been a joy talking to you, Sarah. Thank you so much, Connie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the American Association of Critical Care Nurses Leadership Podcast, proudly sponsored by AACN's Preceptor Challenge, with information available at aacn.org forward slash precept. We welcome your thoughts on this episode or ideas for future topics. Feel free to email us anytime at podcasts at aacn.org.